You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Brett Christophers, a geographer based out of the Institute for Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University. His work focuses on various aspects of Western capitalism, both historically and in the present day. In 2018, he wrote The New Enclosure about Margaret Thatcher's immensely successful program to privatize land in the UK, for which he won the 2019 Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize. In 2020, he published Rentier Capitalism, which provides a framework for understanding the political economy of the 20th and 21st centuries in terms of the extraction of rents by the haves from the have-nots. That book is the subject of our conversation today. Brett Christophers, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for navigating the time difference with me from Sweden. I want to start just by asking a little bit about how you came to this topic in particular. In my experience, most books like this, most big research projects like this, they start with a a sort of central question that the author is seeking to answer. What is the question at the heart of rentier capitalism? I mean, actually, the way I would put it is to say that there isn't so much a kind of a central question or a central puzzle. But I think that the best way to explain, well, both the book's genesis and its kind of key argument is in relation to the other book of mine that you mentioned mm. in the in the introduction, which was The New Enclosure. So that book, as you mentioned, was a book about the privatisation of land in Britain um, that began under the, the Thatcher administration, which came to power at the end of the 1970s, but actually has continued ever since. Her government started it, but it's continued ever since, including under Labour administrations as well as Conservative administrations. So if you go back to the end of the 1970s, the public sector in all its different forms owned around about 20% of land across Britain. Mm. Whereas if you look today, that figure is around about, and in fact, probably a little bit lower than 10%. So, So essentially, half of all the land that the public sector owned at the end of the 1970s has since been sold. And as you indicated, that's been a very kind of deliberate and very much ideologically driven program of land privatisation. Now, one of the several things that I focused upon in that book, The New Enclosure, was was how that program of privatisation has both fueled and fortified and enlarged a kind of class, which is predominantly corporatist, but also individuals and households of land rentier. So yeah. institutions and individuals who's, for whom a, a significant amount of their income derives from owning land and renting out land, whether that's residential land or farming land or industrial land or whatever else it might be. And obviously, because so much land was privatised and handed over to the private sector, then land rent became a commensurately bigger and bigger and bigger business right. for the private sector. So that was a big part of, that, of what that book was about. Now, while I was working on the book and while I was finishing up the book, one thing that in- increasingly struck me was that the kind of the business model that I was describing in the land and housing sector in the new enclosure book is essentially the same business model that kind of applies across British contemporary capitalism more broadly, which is to say it's about getting hold of valuable, scarce assets, ensuring that they are controlled through legal means, regulatory means, or whatever else it might be, and doing everything you can to maximise the income you can extract from controlling rights to access and use that asset, whatever that asset might be. In the case of the the loo enclosure, obviously that asset was land, including housing land. What I realised is that, well, essentially you get the same thing with, for example, various forms of network infrastructure, such as infrastructure in telecommunications, in energy, so electricity transmission grids, also in, in the case of intellectual property, so right. patents and trademarks uh, and copyright and so on. Also in natural resources, so oil and gas reserves, other mineral reserves and so on. Whichever sector you look at, you have a significant constituency of corporate interests who are focused upon securing proprietary monopolistic rights to those assets and controlling means of access and use to them and charging what are effectively rents. 
right, to right. those who require access to those assets, either to live in the case of housing or to provide various services. So rentier capitalism absolutely grew out of the new enclosure through this recognition that rent today is clearly not just about rent on land, it's about rent on a whole series of other types of proprietorial assets. And so that's the kind of origins of the book. And it was very much, therefore, kind of a case of one thing emerging organically from the other. I want to take a second to talk about the the asset types that you have sort of mentioned. So you you cover seven asset types or seven sectors in this book Correct. that you argue are core to rentier capitalism. Financial yeah. assets, natural resource reserves, intellectual property, digital platforms, service contracts, infrastructure assets, and then finally land. So why this set of assets in particular? As I began working on the book, and, and once I kind of had in mind what I wanted to do with it, which was to explore the way in which this rentier model, this rentier dynamic, what it looks like in different parts of the economy. So what are the assets? Who are the rentiers? How they create the assets, how they defend the assets, how they extract income from the assets. I wanted to do a comprehensive job. So I, I wanted to make sure that every significant area of rentierism within the contemporary economy in general, but British economy in particular in this case, was covered off. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the contemporary British economy, thinking, you know, looking at national accounts and looking at, you know, where most economic activity in the UK is concentrated to make sure that there wasn't a significant area of rent dynamic that I was missing. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how to kind of draw lines between the different sectors. And I wanted to you know, make sure that the categories I use in the book have a degree of kind of internal coherence. Mm. So I want to ask now a little bit about the sort of points of overlap in rentierism across these different sectors, because you do take them individually, but you, you note yeah. in several places that there are similarities. So one yeah. I'm thinking of, for example, is your observation that these finance firms have been swooping in to take control of infrastructure rentier firms. And then I was thinking similarly in the in the US, we've seen this investment firm, the Blackstone Group, since the sort of financial crisis in, in 2000 eight and beyond has been similarly like absorbing and acquiring all of these housing firms, these residential property firms kind of en masse. So I guess one thing that yep. I'm interested in is how the incentives to extract rents in one sector might intersect with the incentives to extract rents in others or how they might sort of feed off of each other. Whichever sector you happen to look at, there is a common or shared drive amongst the various rentiers that are involved to ensure that their rights that they have to those assets are as monopolistic, which is to say as free from meaningful competition as is possible. You can see that in various different areas, but one example of that, for example, would be things like intellectual property, where there's been a push from um, those types of institutions that are very prominent in the intellectual property space over the last 30 or 40 years to, for example, defang things like antitrust when it mm. comes to potential interventions around those rights to make sure that those rights are tantamount to monopoly rights so that you can and, and, and also to ensure that those rights persist for as long as possible so that you have those monopoly rights for as long as is the case. And so you, you see the same thing, for example, in oil and gas extraction. So moves to make sure by oil and gas exploration companies that their rights to explore in particular parts of, say, the North Sea preclude all competitors from exploring in those particular areas for a particular duration of, say, 20, 30 or even, or even 40 years. So doing everything they can to render those rights as monopolistic yeah. as possible, as strong as possible, is absolutely something that you see across all these sectors. I think second, the second of the two things I wanted to mention picks up on the point you were saying, which is you see the same names kind of cropping up again and again across sectors that kind of at first blush, you think, well, what on earth have these things got to do with each other? So for example, 
while I was working on the book, I kept coming across the Canadian Public Pension Investment Board, which is a, a massive in, international financial investment institution. And I kept seeing it in, in different chapters of the book. So you would see it, for example, in owning ports in the UK, but you would also see it owning train rolling stock. And you would see it in all these different other sectors. And, and what you realize is that all those various of these sectors might, on the surface, look like they're very different things. The reality is the fundamental structural economic dynamics that are involved are actually exactly the same. They're, they're about creating proprietary assets, rendering them scarce if they are not scarce yeah. by their very, very nature, and doing everything you can to maximize the potential to extract rent from those assets over the life that you have them as proprietary assets. And so Blackstone would be is another great example. Uh, as you know, they do a lot of investment in real estate commercial real estate as much as as much as residential real estate through their real estate funds but they're also increasingly large investors of in infrastructure so they they would be a significant actor both in the chapter on infrastructure rents but also in the chapter on on land and housing rents and even you could argue in the chapter on intellectual property rent they are major investors for example in ancestry.com Oh, wow. Which is a form of intellectual property rentierism. And so essentially what you see there is you get the same actors cropping up again and again because they are specialists, not so much in a particular type of asset, but they're specialists in a particular type of business model. Yeah, I was thinking about when you brought up Ancestry, I was thinking about the sort of other piece of Ancestry's business in addition to the the things that most people know, which is the family tree part of it, they are also one of the businesses that has started doing DNA testing and DNA uh Yep. You know, I think the primary quote unquote benefit that they provide to people through that is to show the, to show the them, genetic makeup or whatever. Yeah, like where where they're historically from based on their yeah. genetics. Yeah. But yep. that information is largely used by the companies who collect it to sell to insurance companies. And so that's a great example to show the ways that and I think you have a chart in this book that sort of talks about the different like some companies that sort of appear across multiple. Correct. Absolutely. Infrastructures. Yeah. Uh, that that's a great example of one that you know what they what they do on the outside seems very you know it seems anodyne it seems completely sort of innocuous and just you know yes it's IP but it's fairly straightforward but it, it has all these intersections not just with the sort of finance side from the investment not just with the sort of infrastructure side um, but also it's IP to begin with but you might not see that it's got this sort of like health IP component yeah, as well absolutely yeah absolutely no I think that's I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah. So there were a couple of things I wanted to sort of get into about the sort of model of rentier capitalism in general. And part mm -hmm. of it is just that right, it, there, there's a way you can view this book as a response to uh, several other sort of books and pieces of, of work on the sort of late capitalism that attribute, yeah. that, that see the primary insight as being something around financialization. So yeah. I, I wanted to ask where the concepts of renterism and financialization diverge and why, in your yeah. view, financialization is the wrong takeaway. What is it that, like, renterism explains that financialization can't? Yeah. So for your listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with that, Thank particular, you. Yes. <laughs> that particular concept, financialization is a word that it's actually become a little bit less dominant in the last couple of years. But for a long time, particularly between sort of around 2010 and 2020, it was a term that a lot of people who work in and around political economy were using to try to capture what they saw as the dominant kind of form of transformations of contemporary capitalism. So the argument was that contemporary capitalism has become quote unquote financialized in various different ways. So in increasing dominance of financial markets, growing levels of debt, but in particular, the growing role of the financial sector within the economy. Um, so lots of data around the proportion of, of US corporate profits, for example, that was generated by the financial sector. So there's lots and lots of articles and books that were written between 2010 and 2020 around the financialization of capitalism, the financialization of American capitalism, British capitalism, and so on and so forth. And I, I was always interested in those arguments and persuaded by them to some extent. But it always struck me that they were taking what I saw as certainly something that was important within the economy, but at the same time, something that was very partial and only really, I thought, sort of applicable to part of the economy and kind of generalizing from there. So my view was always, well, yeah, 
this is going on, but this is only part and part of a wider set of developments. And so I guess the argument I make in the book is that what we've seen in recent decades is, is not just the growing role of finance, but is actually the growing role of rent and rentiers, of which financial rents and financial rentiers are only one manifestation. And there's a whole other slew of increasingly important rents and rentiers that the concept of financialization really doesn't really give you a huge amount of purchase on. So the way I put it in the book was that I think I posit the idea of financialization as being kind of a leading edge of what you might call rentierization. Mm. Join KSQD every Sunday night at 10 for the Evil Eye radio program with host Forrest Reed. It's a unique exploration of Yiddish folklore, Jewish mysticism, and Kabbalah. Folk tales, superstitions, and wisdom are interwoven with atmospheric music. That's Sunday nights at 10, here on KSquid 90.7 FM and online at ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and geographer Brett Christophers, whose book Rentier Capitalism details a framework for understanding modern capitalism in terms of extracted rents. I am still interested to understand a little bit about the differences and what they can explain. And particularly, one thing right. that I was especially interested in that you talk about toward the later part of the book, so it's not really intersecting with some of those early arguments around financialization, was the the impacts of a rentier economy of rentierism, not just on inequality in sort of the broad income sense or the wealth sense, but also I think you say something that uh, along the lines of that power rather than any particular material asset type is really the major asset at play in rentier capitalism. And you see those impacts in things like labor relations and <laughs> where it's not as obvious how rentierism might come into play. And so I'm curious in, in areas like that or in some of these other sort of areas of impact, how you see the, the two systems diverging. Oh, that's a big that's a big question. I'm not sure that my answer to it will directly shed light on that question around financialization versus rentier capitalism, but hopefully it will do so implicitly, if not explicitly. Sure. I guess when it comes to labor. The thing that I was kind of arguing in the book is that insofar as rentier capitalism is about capital being predominantly focused upon enhancing the productivity of assets like land and intellectual property and infrastructure, the questions of things like labour productivity become almost a kind of a very much a secondary consideration and that rentier capital is focused on exploiting labour predominantly to enhance the productivity of, of assets rather than to enhance its own productivity, if, if that makes yeah. sense. So I think that's where that fits in. I mean, I, mean, I guess the, the other point about labour is that was that I was keen to keep labour within the picture to the extent that I could, precisely because I think a lot of arguments about rentier capitalism and indeed financialization tend to exclude questions of labor mm. because there's this, and I think this is a really important point actually, because there's this sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit postulate that these sorts of assets kind of generate income by themselves. Mm. The, 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 in a sense, the rentier the is passive this kind of income. Completely. It's all about passive income. And that's one of the reasons why we kind of why we on the left historically have sort of been critical of the rent here is because of this, this idea of this kind of lazy, unproductive... Not doing own, anything to earn their profits. Who does nothing to earn. And, and I think one of the arguments I make in the book is, well, I don't think any of these assets kind of self-generate income. Even assets like housing require the application of a certain amount of labour to varying degrees to enable rents to continue to be extracted. Mm. Um whether that's in kind of actually collecting the rent or maintaining the property, fielding tenant queries. I mean, you know, a lot of that might be relatively perfunctory, but even there, labour does get applied. And I think related to that, one of the things I try very hard to do is for it not to be a kind of a moralistic critique of, of the rentier, which I think right. a lot of the other, you know, you mentioned some of the pre-existing accounts out there. I think a lot of the existing accounts of rentier capitalism and indeed of 
what you might call finance capital on the left are moralistic accounts. They, again, implicitly, if not explicitly, they counterpose the rentier, whether that's a financial rentier or any other type of rentier, to the quote unquote productive capitalist who kind of earns Hmm. their income yeah so there's like a good and bad capitalist yeah and i really and i just i'm really really wary of that sort of that sort of argument for all sorts of different reasons so to the extent that the book is a critique it's it's absolutely a political economic critique rather than a moral a moral economic critique it it's basically a critique of what the implications are of the economy being rentierist yeah. For both for the economy at large and for the and for the kind of main constituencies, including labor within the economy. You titled this book Rentier Capitalism, but as you have observed in it, it can be very difficult to conceptualize capitalism apart from rentierism once you yeah. have an understanding yeah, of what absolutely. So I guess yeah. that's a question I have for you. Is capitalism possible without rent? And is rentierism possible in the absence of capitalism? No, that's a great question. And one of the things that I try to be very clear about when I talk about the book is exactly about this question. So for me, at least, rentier capitalism is not, what it is not is a new form of capitalism that has displaced or replaced a previous form of capitalism, which was not rentierist. That's absolutely not the argument. I think my argument was and is that rent is inherent to capitalism. All forms of of income within capitalism have rentier elements to them. In, in some cases, they might be just, you know, mere kind of trace elements. And in some cases, they are rent almost in their totality. But I think it would be very hard to think of any form of, of income within capitalism that doesn't have a rentier component if you define rent as I do in the book, which is as income derived by virtue of control of a scarce asset. So what my argument is, is that the rentier element, the rentier I guess, share the rentier component of capital and capitalism and capitalist income generation has become much more dominant in recent decades than it was previously. So that's, so no, I don't think you can have capitalism without rent, but I think you can. And I think in the past at various points, you did have capitalism that was less dominated by rent and rentiers than it is today. Thank you so much. Uh, So I'm going to ask you to read a short excerpt from the book now, from the end of the chapter on land renterism, which is amusingly titled Ground Control. I had had Life on Mars stuck in my head for like a week. Um, Can you start on page 373? Yes. Okay. One individual long vexed by the institution of private land ownership under capitalism was Karl Marx. It never quite made sense to him. Under feudalism and in predominantly agrarian societies, The landowner was certainly, in Marx's words, an important functionary in production. But this was not so, Marx reckoned, under mid-19th century industrial capitalism, which had reduced the landowner to little more than a, again in quotes, useless superfetation. What specifically puzzled Marx was that, despite this uselessness, industrial capitalists not only tolerated the landowner's existence, but shared with her and with bankers the surplus value produced by workers, which was apportioned between rent, interest and profit of enterprise. Why not do what Marx thought the dominant industrial class should logically do, which was to turn privately owned partitioned land, quote, into the common property of the bourgeois class of capital? Marx advanced a couple of possible reasons, of which arguably the most persuasive was that private ownership of land served to legitimise private ownership more generally. David Harvey, in his own discussion of these issues, has expanded on this point. Private property and land, he suggested, following Marx, performs, quote, an ideological and legitimising function for all forms of private property, end quote. Insofar as this is true, Harvey continued, and again I'm quoting, we can regard rent as a side payment allowed to landowners in order to preserve the sanctity and inviolability of private property in general, end quote. Private land ownership is the ideological bulwark of private property ownership in toto. This argument is deeply suggestive with respect to the recent history of the UK. Why did the 1980s and 1990s not see more concerted resistance to the advance of neoliberalism and, with it, to the broadly based elevation of private property rights manifested, among other things, in the privatisation of more or less everything that could be privatised? I hazarded one answer in Chapter 2 in the form of the country's North Sea oil and gas dividend and its cushioning welfare provisions for workers thrown onto the metaphorical slag heap. 
But right to buy, which was the process by which sitting tenants in council properties were given the right to buy those properties from the government at a, at a steep discount, right to buy is plainly also part of the answer. Right to buy was, in many respects, Thatcher's defining achievement. It was the privatisation that gave many of those perhaps most inclined to kick against neoliberalism a personal stake in the neoliberal project. In doing so, it disinclined them to protest against all those other privatisations, not least those examined in chapter six of this book, that not only gave them zero stake, the UK never did become a share-owning democracy, least of all on former council estates, but actually robbed them of all the public wealth that they formerly owned. Borrowing terms from Harvey, we might say that right to buy and the land privatisation it entailed performed a legitimising ideological function for neoliberalism more broadly, to which, in the UK, privatisation was always central. The transformations in the housing sector which right, to which right to buy was so central lubricated the neoliberal shift in other ways too. As we've seen in this book, deregulation and liberalisation of the mortgage market which had been necessary to enable right to buy, precipitated unprecedented growth in residential land prices from the early 1990s. This financial boon to the growing population of homeowners, owner occupancy rates in the UK rose from 55% when Thatcher entered Downing Street to approximately 70% at their 2002 peak, papered over all manner of cracks that neoliberalism was busily opening up in other dimensions of household economies. Through mechanisms such as equity release, it compensated for stagnating incomes. It was also increasingly relied upon to soften the impact of economically stressful life events, childbirth, divorce, unemployment, for which a diminished welfare state no longer made much provision. Welfare was now asset-based. And yet the very same credit fueled boom in residential land prices that made many people feel like neoliberalism's winners and helped them to ride out its vicissitudes has ultimately pushed home ownership beyond reach for younger generations, dragging owner occupancy rates back down to around 60% and crystallising the grievances of millions of renters who not only feel but know themselves to be neoliberalism's losers. The Resolution Foundation estimated in 2016 that the UK's millennial generation born between 1981 and 2000 will, on average, have spent £44,000 more on housing rent by the time they reach 30 than the baby boomer generation born between 1946 and 1965 did. The current housing crisis, Will Self is therefore right to conclude, is, quote, not so much emblematic of a transmogrification from a social market economy to a neoliberal one, it is constitutive of that process. The asset transfer from the state to the rich, the pump priming of the value of those assets, the forcing of the poor into more expensive private rental accommodation, all of which measures are underpinned by a financial system heavily dependent on mortgage lending, end quote. In a sense, right to buy, in aiming to reduce levels of rentierism, albeit public sector rentierism, was always a contradictory doomed project. Rentierism, as this book has shown, is integral to what neoliberalism is. It's coded into its DNA. That credit-based land price inflation would eventually lead to the materialisation of a new rentier class and a new class of disaffected renters seems, at least in retrospect, the entirely predictable result. The Thatcherite home ownership project could only resist the inherent rentier privileging dynamics of neoliberalism for so long. The same set of processes that first dampened but then revivified land rentierism then, having originally buttressed the shift to neoliberalism, is now underwriting growing opposition to it within generation rent. It would be hard to imagine a better example of Karl Polanyi's famous double movement, which entailed widespread marketization and privatization, followed by vigorous social resistance to those twin dynamics, specifically where what had been privatized and marketized was land or one of the other so-called fictitious commodities. On a Polanyian reading, at any rate, Land ownership and its associated rentier dynamics would have to be seen as central, not just to UK neoliberalism's formative successes, but also to its current difficulties and perhaps to its eventual failure. On such potential failure, finally, it's worth recalling Marx, who not only understood what made capitalism and its ideology of private property so successful, private land ownership being one pivotal factor, but was convinced that in the secrets of its success, lay also the foretelling of its demise. 
The rule of the bourgeois Democrats from the very first will, Marx prophesied, carry within it the seeds of its own destruction. Perhaps the same will prove true of the home rule of the UK's bourgeois neoliberals. The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters, Sunday evening at 6, on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer and geographer Brett Christophers, whose book, Rentier Capitalism, details a framework for understanding modern capitalism in terms of extracted rents. So we're going to shift our discussion now to housing on, sure. <laughs> on and to land rent more generally <laughs> on the basis of that. When I was reading the discussion of land rentierism in the UK, one thing that especially struck me was two aspects of the regulatory environment that you argue contribute to the UK being an especially hospitable environment for land rentierism. First, the absence of rent controls and severe limits on real estate, and second, the severe limits on real estate taxes. In your analysis, yeah. what is it about these two features of the UK's legal framework that so strongly incentivizes or rewards land rentierism? I think the answer to that's quite straightforward, right? It has for a long time now, paid that handsomely to be a land rentier and more specifically to be a residential land rentier. In other mm. words, to be a to be a, hand, a housing rentier. And actually, it's worth pausing briefly to explain, I guess, a little bit why I treat housing rent as predominantly as a form of land rent. Mm -hmm. One of the data points I produced in the book, if not in the book itself than elsewhere, was that if you go back to, say, the 1930s in, in the UK, most estimates suggested that the, the proportion of the price of a home, of a house, that represented the price of the land underlying that house was about somewhere between, say, 2 and 10%. Oh, wow. So essentially, back then, you, you were buying literally the house. Whereas most estimates today suggest that on average across the UK, the proportion is something like 70%. And in places like yeah. London, it's you know, 90, 95%. So basically, housing rent is land rent today in places like the UK, and in particular in places like London. So as I said, it's been a very hospitable environment for the land slash housing rentier, primarily because A, there are very few limits on the ability of the owner of housing to do everything they want to do to maximize the rent they can extract for that. So as you said, there are no rent controls in the UK. There used, there used to be rent controls, which had broadly all gone by the end of the 1980s. Also, um, another thing that's, that's worth mentioning in that respect, which, which just to add to the point you made, is that it's very, very easy for landlords to evict tenants yeah. in, in the UK, much easier than it is in many other countries. One of the kind of really hated clauses of the, of the Housing Act, of housing legislation, hated by many tenants and also housing campaigners, is the so-called no-fault eviction. So you, you don't need a reason to evict a tenant who is on a so-called assured short-hold tenancy, which is the default tenancy form in the UK. So landlords are, are an incredibly advantageous position vis-a-vis -vis tenants because there are no rent controls and evictions are very, very straightforward. So they can extract lots of rent very, very easily. And then historically, it's also in the last few decades been the case that taxation of that rent has been quite favourable. I mean, it's, it's not as favourable as in certain other places. I was in New Zealand recently and I found out there that there, there are no, there are zero capital gains taxes oh, wow. at all in New Zealand. So a landlord can own hundreds of properties and faces no tax bill when buying and selling those properties. So the UK is not that friendly, but by international standards, it's still pretty friendly. Yeah. So part of the reason I'm interested in this aspect of your analysis is that in reading this about the UK, and I was not super familiar with the with what housing and residential renting environment is like or or purchase uh, environments were like in the UK before this, it is so similar to California in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yep. And the and the timeline is the same, which is is not surprising given the uh, close relationship between Thatcher and Reagan, um, yep. and and the sort of similarity of their programs. But there, there's sort of two pieces of legislation in California that I think are are especially important. So there's Proposition 13, which was enacted in 1978, so a year before Thatcher yep. came to power. Mm-hmm that sets severe limits on the tax rate for real estate, both commercial and residential. And an interesting thing when I was reviewing those, um, I I think this was about Prop 13, is that it requires like a two-thirds majority to overturn, which has become a... That in general has become like a feature of a lot of neoliberal propositions that are sort of put into put onto the ballot for people to vote on, is you vote on it with very limited information and then it's impossible to overturn. Sorry, I got I got a little on a tangent there. And then the second no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> the second piece of legislation is one that was introduced through the state, I th- think the state Senate, which was the Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act. And that functionally hogtied rent control in the state. So you can still you can still have rent control in various municipalities throughout California. But it is it limited the stock that rent control couldn't be applied to. So no single family homes, no new buildings. I think it's within about a twenty year period. Um, There's some other sort of restrictions there. And then the the big piece that I personally think really hogtied rent control is it banned vacancy controls, which set limits on the amount that a landlord can increase rent between tenants. So, you know, if you're a young renter in San Francisco, you know, you're 21, you're going to be moving like six times over the next 10 years. Every time you move, if you're in a rent-controlled unit in San Francisco, every time you move, the rent is going to bounce right back up to market rate. Yeah, yeah. And... One thing that is interest, especially interesting to me is that in the United States, and I, I don't know what it's like in the UK, discussion of the housing crisis, and in California in particular, is so often limited to talking points about the volume of available housing, as yeah. though, right, like yeah. it's it's a simple matter of supply and demand. And yeah. you talk, when you talk about right to buy, about the way that that increased housing stock in the UK. And so I, I was interested to hear your hear your thoughts on what that and other things that you've seen in your analysis of land rentierism in the UK might say about the relative import of the regulatory environment versus sort of supply and demand type dynamics. Yeah, those are, those are great questions. So I, I totally hear what you're saying about the kind of dominance and, and in fact, kind of overwhelming dominance of arguments about supply and demand around questions of housing and housing mm-hmm. affordability, because precisely the same dominance is, is, is noticeable in the UK, where housing affordability is as much of a crisis as it is in the US and, and in general in California in particular. It's, it's, it's the same here in Sweden, where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, again, housing very unaffordable, mainstream debate completely dominated by questions of supply and demand. Now, unlike a lot of colleagues on the left who sort of almost in a knee-jerk fashion kind of poo-poo those arguments about supply and demand, clearly I think the questions of supply and demand are important. I think that if you massively increase supply, then you're likely to have a beneficial impact on affordability, whether that's owner-occupancy affordability and or for renting. But clearly there's other sorts of issues that play enormously important roles around things like credit availability and the, and the cost of credit, for mm. for example. Questions about, and this goes back to something you were saying earlier, questions about the identity of the landlord class. Are we talking about kind of mom and pop landlords on the one hand, or are we talking about Blackstone and Carlisle investment institutions on the other? So supply and demand is for sure part of the story but it's not the only part of the story. I think one of the things that I would point out, and this kind of has come out in other research that I've been actually doing since the Rentier Capitalism book came out, is the fact that I think a big part of the problem, as I see it, is that a lot of the institutional and corporate actors that politicians, including in the US, have increasingly been looking to, to help, quote unquote, solve the housing crisis through adding significant new supply actually have no interest in doing that. So I'm thinking Mm. about private equity firms like Blackstone, for example. So when they talk to the media, when they talk to the public, they're very forthright about saying, you know, we're part of the solution to the housing crisis, we'll Mm. help add to supply. 
But actually, if you read their investor reports for investors and things like that, they absolutely explicitly admit that they invest precisely in in neighbourhoods where there are supply shortages because there are supply shortages. And it's because it's supply shortages that more than anything else maintains upward pressure on rents and therefore their ability to extract significant rents and to price above market average prices and so on. And, And also they say that, look, if we see new supply coming on stream, well, that's a signal for us to sell. It's certainly not an, a signal for us to invest in an area. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big part of the problem, to my mind, is that is that not only are the types of actors that governments increasingly say, well, look, they've got the capital, they can help invest. Not only do they not really want to invest, they're actively imposed to resolving supply shortages because supply shortages are, are their business model. And going back to what you were saying about Costa Hawkins, as I'm sure you know, there have been various attempts to revoke or repeal that yes. law in recent years. Yeah. And and so so I'm sure you know better than anyone that Blackstone slash Invitation Homes, which Invitation Homes at the time, Blackstone was still the, the main shareholder in, was the main contributor to the campaign against the proposition in 2018 to repeal Costa Hawkins. Absolutely no surprise there. But I think what is a surprise is that you know, whatever, 60, 70 percent of Californians who voted voted against that yeah. proposition, which in a state with more rent burdened residents proportionally than any other state in the US is, to my mind, it's baffling. Yeah. It is utterly mind boggling that they would vote against a proposition that in no way would harm them. But in it, you would imagine had a, had a quite a significant potential to improve the, the quality and cost of their lives. It's a very complex situation. So I think supply, I mean, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think supply and demand are very, are very, very relevant. But A, there are lots of other, conti- you know, equally relevant factors that we need to think about. And B, the way we understand supply and demand has been kind of, for, for want of a better word, warped by mm. very, very powerful rentier interests. Yeah, thank you. I want to, because you mentioned the sort of baffling, <laughs> the the bafflingness of the votes on attempts to repeal Casa Hawkins, I wanted to get into a, a piece of Right to Buy. The, it's actually part of the excerpt you read. So you, you wrote, Right to Buy was, in many respects, Thatcher's defining achievement. It was the privatization that gave many of those perhaps most inclined to kick against neoliberalism a personal stake in the neoliberal project. And that quote immediately, I mean, I live in Monterey County, so of course it reminded me of the Steinbeck quote about temporarily embarrassed capitalists. But I think it's so interesting to me that like the point of something like right to buy is to erode any kind of class consciousness. And similarly, I think a lot of the sort of narratives around Costa Hawkins, around Prop 13, when they came into effect and and from the uh, from Blackstone and other sort of investors in the opposition campaigns to repeals, really focuses on on that element. It's really about sort of dividing yeah. class consciousness. So I, I was curious for your perspective on why it's so necessary to do that to sustain a system like like capitalism and rentier capitalism in particular. Yeah, that's a great question. I suppose the simple point I would make there is that. When you have a society, like absolutely is clearly the case in the US today and increasingly has become the case in the UK, which is unbelievably unequal with a not insignificant class of extremely wealthy people at the, at the top, but also kind of a hollowed out middle and a growing class at the bottom. It's important, well, I mean, it's critical to maintain sort of faith in capitalism amongst those who to one extent or another are are really disenfranchised. And I suppose housing has always played in the 20th and certainly in the 21st century an important role in that, which is obviously one of the reasons why why no government in recent decades has shown any inclination to kind of relinquish the ideology of home ownership, the idea that home ownership is the kind of peak of personal aspiration, at least Mm -hmm. in, in, least in the economic domain. Because I suppose if you accept the reality, which is that that dream is increasingly laughable for large proportions of people, you are really undermining, I guess what I called in that excerpt, a fundamental ideological bulwark. And what else is there if if you don't have that? 
And so I think that's why it's very, very important. I think in the absence of anything else that, you know, with stagnant wages, like what else is there for people to aspire to economically? Which is why in the UK case, for example, you continue to get housing policies that just continue to pour fuel on the fire, things like help to buy, just really doing everything to kind of pull the ladder further further yeah. out of reach, I suppose. So it's about it's about hegemony, right? It's about Gramsci and it's about maintaining the credibility of capitalism. I think housing plays, you know, I'm no expert on those questions, but everything I've read that others have written suggests that housing is absolutely central to that contemporary class project. Obviously, the other part of that, of all the, of the opposition to Costa Hawkins and a, lot, and a lot of the lobbying, I mean, one of the things that's so galling about the opposition is that is that argument against rent controls that the likes of Blackstone and others periodically wheel out is oh you know if you have rent controls it'll just that'll just dampen new construction yeah, no one will build yeah and it's like well you don't want to build it I mean you've got no interest in building really anyway so it's like mm-hmm. it's just such a self-serving fig leaf of an argument at the, at the end of the day Joining me, my guest today is writer and geographer Brett Christophers, whose book Rentier Capitalism details a framework for understanding modern capitalism in terms of extracted rents. Thank you so much. So I think we only have time for one more question. So just to end on a positive note, um, in the coda to this book, you outline four interventions that you argue are collectively necessary to halt and reverse the inequalities created by rentier capitalism. Can you share a little bit about what these interventions are and why you see them necessary, both individually and together? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that it's, it's always when it comes to quote-unquote solutions that I always feel on my weakest ground. I'm one of those academics who finds it a lot easier to point out problems than propose ways yeah. of addressing those problems. So with that said, there are four th- things that I indeed pointed to in that last chapter. And actually, with the passing of time, I think I remain convinced by those. I think that they are individually and collectively things that I think are important. And actually, I also think that more than anything else I've ever written, this was a book where just the subsequent events with the passing of time have, to my mind at least, been a a kind of a vindication of, of what I wrote. So I I don't think you can understand what's happened in the UK since 2020 when the book was published without absolutely understanding the rentier nature of, of the British economy. Everything that's happened since, I think, is readily explicable in the terms that the book lays out. But anyway, yes, I pointed to four things. So the first of them I mentioned first, because I think it will be recognisable to many of your listeners in the US context, is a kind of more meaningful industrial policy. And um, and so what I mean by that is the idea of government actively trying to direct resources and investment in strategic sectors of the economy, which in my book was saying sectors that are not dominated by rentierism. As I'm sure many listeners will know, industrial policy kind of became a dirty word for many decades during the neoliberal era. It was all about letting markets decide where capital should flow to. You know, governments shouldn't be in the business of picking winners. Governments should kind of stay out of the allocation of economic resources that's best left to markets and the private sector. And obviously, one of the main planks of Bidenomics has been to say, well, no, we're not going to carry on down that road. At least we're going to, in some parts of the economy, we do think we need a more active role for government intervention in terms of channeling where economic resources are going. And that was one thing I thought in the book would be one way to kind of try to chip away at the, the rentier of the UK economy was by government trying to channel resources a little bit away from that. So more government intervention in that sense. The second one was a more substantive role for antitrust. So for which Mm. in the UK context is referred to as competition policy. And it goes back to something I was saying earlier, which is that one of the common trends across all these different rentier sectors of the economy is attempts by rentiers, very strongly supported by government and regulators, to render the proprietary rights that they enjoy to various assets as watertight, as monopolistic as possible. 
And I thought and still think that there's a role for antitrust in making those rents less secure, Mm. um, in enhancing competition in areas like, for example, intellectual property development and so on, which would actually lead to a much more kind of buoyant, less stagnant economy than the UK currently has. I think one of, as I argue in the book, one of the reasons why the UK economy has been so stagnant is precisely because it is a rentier economy in which it's becoming very, very profitable to kind of sit on existing assets and and sweat them and extract incomes from them because there is no competition across these all these different sectors that that might kind of shake things up a little bit. So I think a more active role for, for antitrust Precisely of the kind that Lena Khan has been trying to facilitate at the FTC in the U- in the US case was something else I thought might be relevant. Third one was related to taxation. So again, we've touched on this very, very briefly already, but only briefly. But one of the arguments I make in the book is that one of the main reasons why the UK has become such a rent and rentier dominated economy is that government fiscal policy has has encourage that. It's made it very, very profitable to be a rentier precisely by reducing taxes on wealth and assets of various kinds. So the UK tax system, not to the same extent as the New Zealand tax system, to right. go to mention the example <laughs> I mentioned earlier, but taxes on, on income are substantially more impactful than taxes on wealth and assets which is the same in the us yeah and there's all sorts of you know arguments about land the land value taxation for example would tend to get nowhere in the uk there are no wealth taxes and things like that and again i think if you want to deal with the rentier stranglehold stranglehold on the uk economy you have to through tax policy you have to make it less attractive to be a rentier you have to make it more attractive to actually be an entrepreneur rather than just talk about being an entrepreneur so that was the third one and then the fourth one which i think in a sense, is the most fundamental one of all, comes back to the question of ownership. So a rentier economy is nothing if not an economy in which private ownership is the default ownership model. And the UK has kind of has taken that to a greater extreme than I think probably any other Western economy, much more so than, than the US, for example. Yeah. So pretty much everything that could be privatised has been privatized since the end of the nine since the end of the 1970s. There's very little left to be privatized because everything has been privatized. And so private ownership is the default ownership model. Absolutely, it is an article of faith amongst the powers that be that the government should own as little as as little as possible. And so that's completely fundamental to a to a frontier economy. So again, if you if you want to facilitate the development of a, of a different type of economy, I think it's completely essential that you give the possibility for alternative ownership forms to flourish. And what I don't argue is, you know, we need to nationalise everything, right. renationalise everything that's being privatised. Right, it's more about decommodifying it, about taking it out of private yeah, ownership, putting it in community or local. <laughs> exactly. So I th- as I put it in the book, like a kind of a mixed ecology of ownership, where, yeah, absolutely some things can be and maybe even should be privately owned, but not everything. Yeah. You know, there should be a space for community ownership. There should be a space for employee ownership of corporations. And there should be a space for renationalization of certain assets. And things like electricity and water would probably be the two that, to my mind, big utilities, where privatization in the UK has been a categorical failure and should be reversed. But I don't think everything should be reversed. Brett Christophers, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It was a, a pleasure. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was re- really nice to talk to you. You can learn more about Brett's work from his page on the Verso website, which I will link in the show notes. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.